episode number three, featuring special guest Arielle Henley, author of A Face for Picasso, available now in bookstores near you. In this episode, we're sitting down and talking with author Aria Henley about her acclaimed memoir, A Face for Picasso. I'm super excited. This conversation is going to be so good. Make sure you stay tuned and continue to follow us on the Womanhood and Disability podcast. Hello, hello. This is Rashira Dobson, the host of the Womanhood and Disability Podcast. And today we have a special guest, Ms. Ariel Henley. Ms. Ariel Henley is a writer from Northern California with a Bachelor's of Arts degree in English and Political Science from the University of Vermont and a Master's degree in Education from the University of the Pacific. She is passionate about writing as a form of activism and hopes to use her story to promote mainstream inclusion for individuals with physical differences. Her work has appeared in the New York Times, The Atlantic, The Washington Post, and Narratively. Her memoir, A Face for Picasso, is about Ariel and her twin sister's journey in growing up with Cruzon syndrome. So let me just tell you guys, I am super excited to have uh, Ariel on the podcast today. I feel like it's taken us a really long time to like actually connect, but I feel like we've been following each other for quite a while over the past maybe three years. And so just to even have you here on the podcast, um, also as another woman who identifies as having a facial difference, I always think that's such a special moment. So welcome, Ariel. Thank you for coming. Thank you so much for having me. I am so glad we were able to make this this happen because um, I am such a fan of everything you do mm-hmm. um, and I love following your journey. So this is really meaningful for me. Same, same here. So I know we have a couple of questions, but I just want to say the first piece that I think I officially um that really just gave me a really glimpse into your personal story and having Cruzon syndrome. And for all of you um, who've been listening to the podcast, Cruzon syndrome is also considered a craniofacial condition. It's a, there is a wide spectrum of different conditions and um, I like to call conditions. Some people refer to them as disorders, but different conditions um, and abnormalities that fall on the craniofacial spectrum. And Cruzon syndrome, Golden Heart syndrome, Cougar Collins syndrome, we're all on that same spectrum. So Ariel here is a part of the family. Um, but I actually read a piece of hers in um, Disability Visibility by Alice Wong. I remember the day I was li- listening, actually it was an audiobook I was listening to, and I was skating because I went through this phase in the summer where I like to skate on the trail and, you know, listen to podcasts or whatever, and I was listening to her story, and I was just like, wow, like, the first thing I thought was like, this is kind of like me, like... <laughs> You took all the words from my brain that I was thinking about as far as like my adolescent experience and having a facial difference and being a girl and you kind of just summarized it really, really well. So if you could just tell us about your memoir, it is out now. Um, Tell us about your story. Give us a little snippet and what are you hoping the readers will get from your story? 
Yeah, so, well, first of all, thank you so much for listening to the uh, podcast version of my essay in Disability Visibility. My memoir, A Face for Picasso, is actually an extension of that essay. Um, So a version of that is chapter one. Um, And that is really uh, what got me interested in writing more like I always knew I wanted to write a book and write about my story specifically which like I'll get into in a second but um it wasn't until I wrote that essay uh that was originally in narratively and then it was published in disability visibility that I started hearing from other people with craniofacial conditions who who said the exact same thing of like hi are you writing about my life and until then (laughs) I had no idea that there were so many people out there with experiences similar to mine and so it was really um powerful for me to get to hear from other people and connect with so many other people um so that essay means a lot to me which is why it's a part of my book which um it basically it's a young adult memoir um but it's for young adults and adults alike there's I, I don't really understand necessarily what makes a book young adult versus right. adult, you know, because like a lot of adults that have read my memoir are like, this is great for everyone. Everyone should read it, which is, of course, like, I don't know, the greatest compliment to me. But um, anyway, <laughs> uh, my twin sister, Zan, and I were diagnosed with Cruzon syndrome. And so for anyone who doesn't know what that is, uh, it's basically when the bones in the head fuse prematurely. Mm-hmm. So from the time we were eight months old, we had surgeries to uh, expand our skull, you know, move things around on our face. Mm-hmm. They do one surgery, everything else shifts, and they got to go back in there and, and move the rest <laughs> of the ground, and then something else moves. And um So when we graduated from high school at 18, we had each had about 60 surgeries. Mm -hmm. And so A Face for Picasso unpacks mostly two operations that we had in middle school, but it uh, kind of, it talks a lot about beauty and the social and I don't know, societal, I guess, expectations that especially women uh, meet these certain arbitrary standards of beauty of, I should say, Western standards of beauty that are super racist, they're ableist, (laughs) sexist, ageist, all of the, the uh, yes, exactly. (laughs) Um, And, you know, if, if you do meet these standards of beauty, you're put on this pedestal and everyone else is just like, no, you're nothing. and so to grow up as a girl with a facial difference in a, I don't know, a town in Northern California mm-hmm. where plastic surgery was not uncommon uh, was very traumatizing. Mm-hmm. And when my sister and I were in elementary school, we were interviewed by the French edition of Mary Claire. Mm-hmm. And in that article, which I didn't find until years later, um, and it was after a summer of really traumatic surgeries, it changed what I looked like, changed what my sister looked like. Uh, we were home and going through the attic and stuff. And I found this article and saw where it had compared our faces to works of Picasso. Mm-hmm. And at the time, um, and I don't know if, if you, relate to this part or not but separating the art from the artist made no sense to me because it was like wherever I went I was stared at I was made fun of if I was bad at 
I don't know, soccer or something. It was like, she's weird looking. No wonder she's bad at soccer. Like everything I did was like, there was, you could not separate anything I did from what I looked like I was my appearance. And so for me, Picasso uh, was his art, like comparing me to a Picasso painting felt like comparing me to Picasso. And so it was like, this is offensive and problematic because I'm a 12 year old girl. Mm-hmm. Like you're comparing me to an old man on one hand. <laughs> uh, secondly, yeah. Secondly, <laughs> you're comparing me to a cubism painting where there's an eye here, a nose here, a mouth here, and like I didn't identify in that way. It felt very insulting, and so I really just unpacked all of my experiences uh, growing up with Cruzon syndrome through the lens of that comparison to Picasso. Mm-hmm. Yeah. So that was kind of a mouthful, but that's <laughs> sort of. No, I mean, there, there's so many nuggets. I think one of the things that really resonated with me in your story, outside of my own personal story, um, is that you were actually real. You're a real person. I know a lot, um, the book Wonder, and there was a lot of um, sensationalism around that story. And I think my biggest, uh, on some of the issues I have, because I'll have to <laughs> tread very lightly there, because I know we have a lot of listeners who might love the story Wonder. It's a great story. Um, but I think for me, it was a little distant because it was a fictional character. Mm-hmm. Um, and then it was a male and he was a white boy. And I was just like, you know, none of this is real to me, even though on some type of level I could connect with the character, it wasn't real because I was like, at the end of the day, I'm still a very real girl with very real facial differences who lives in a very real community. And that is not glamorized at all. Um, and so I think when I read your essay, it kind of, contextualized, um, you know, these are real people and real stories. And it also amplified that um, what I think we don't talk about a lot, which is um, the over, we put the, I'm trying to think of the word to say, but the the over glorification we put on beauty standards and how um, I talk about this a lot in my blog and other podcasts that I've done, but I think if I just would have seen women in my community who maybe looked like me, who maybe had disabilities, it definitely would have helped through those adolescent teenage years where I was going through secret depression, having a lot of just low self-esteem and different things because it just wasn't presented to me in my face. And so to know that there are other women who actually get what it is like to have a facial difference and how there is an extra layer and even expectation that if you're a woman, you know, um, I say this all the time, if you're a woman, like how you, if you're able to get married, your childbearing, dating, all of these surround around all these comprise of your looks are all based on your looks. And so when you don't have that standard, it makes you question everything, you know, our value, you know, they say our our dowry, our, our, our ability to be good wives is all wrapped up in the idea if, if we're good looking or not and I was like well what if we're not like the typical standard does that mean I'm never going to get married does it mean I can't have children like these are serious questions right right absolutely uh, I don't know I think for me like I was very angry yeah as a kid you know and like I couldn't google on syndrome and find anything helpful there weren't Facebook groups there weren't there wasn't Instagram there wasn't Twitter you know it was very isolating it's not like we could walk into a Barnes and Noble or a library and find a book with a character that we could relate to like that just wasn't a thing that existed so it wasn't it was isolating and it really it made me so angry and so 
I think, and, and this is something that I really tried to uh, unpack in a lot of my work. And I get some comments sometimes where people tell me like, calm down, you're so angry, you're so bitter. I'm like, no, I'm not, I'm traumatized. Mm -hmm. And that's just one thing that like, I've worked really hard to try to bring attention to is that like the next generation of kids growing up with Cruzon syndrome, there is a lot of trauma involved and it's not just physical, yeah. it's emotional and psychological. Like it is wild to go in for surgery, wake up and not recognize yourself. Like yeah. that's, that is a weird experience, uh, putting it mildly. Um, and so <laughs> trauma shows up for people differently. And so for me, it was anger for my twin sister. She withdrew. Um, and, and yeah, and the emphasis on beauty only makes it that much harder. Yeah. yeah. And I'll, I'll even go to say, because I'm dating our age a little bit here, but, you know, me and Ariel, we grew up in the early 90s. So um, there was not a plethora of resources that they're available to families and individuals now. Half yeah. of that stuff didn't. I won't even say half, a quarter of that information did not exist. So it was, um, it was very isolating um, and just not knowing. I think for me, I, I kind of withdrew. And then as I became an adult, and I always say this, that ableism really doesn't show up until you become an adult because people love to protect disabled children. They love to, you know, garner them like, oh, you know, we're going to take care of the special needs little girl or the special needs little boy because they just need all this help and attention. But I think for me, it really, the impact of that trauma and actually come bringing it to forefront, it really didn't, um, it really didn't affect me until I became an adult because I no longer had the safety net of my community or my school that I was in. Like I was in the real world and I was like, oh wait, this is like an issue. And, and all these issues are triggering for me because it's dating back to experiences that I've had when I was a child. Like, you know, it, those, those garners were completely taken away. So I more than certainly can relate to that, which kind of leads me into the next question. Um, was it hard for you writing your story? And I know you talked a lot about a trauma and being an author myself, you know, that's a lot to unpack. I feel like when you write your story, it's almost you having to relive every single memory just to be able to tell it to someone else. So how did you gain the confidence or come to a place where you can be able to openly tell about your journey? Yeah, so to start, I will say that I did experience a lot of ableism as a kid. I felt protected in like a medical sense sometimes. Like, you know, I knew my surgeons and um, I usually had the same anesthesiologist and my picture was hanging on the wall at the hospital <laughs> and things like that, where it was like, I felt like it was okay to be myself there. Mm -hmm. um, in some ways, you know, there was still the constant trying to change me, which was mm -hmm. troubling. Um, <laughs> But I don't know, it wasn't the same as um, going to school mm. in my community because I was very different, um, obviously. And elementary school wasn't as bad. Middle school was horrific. Yeah. Uh, teachers were super discriminatory. Um, the people that were supposed to 
look out for me did not Mm -hmm. uh just in terms of like coaches and teachers and Mm -hmm. peers that kind of thing Uh, my parents did their best but you know going having surgery the summer before seventh grade Mm -hmm. trying to go back to school I look different my sister looks different I miss some school everything's weird I'm super mad about everything and everyone uh for nothing and everything um and I remember being in my um like my core class which was like English and history combined and we had an assignment where we had to write a short story and it had to be fiction we could write whatever we wanted whatever um and I kept wanting to write my story Mm -hmm. and so I ended up every time I like went to write a fictional story it ended up being my story just kind of in disguise I guess mm-hmm. um and it got really great feedback I was really feeling lost and like I had no meaning or purpose and I was very depressed and I got great feedback from my teacher and he told me like you might have a future short story writer and I like really held on to that as like I can, I don't know, I guess like some kind of larger purpose. And that was when I decided like, I'm going to tell my story and no one else is going to have to grow up this way. And so I was 12 years old and I decided I wanted to do it and I was very open about it. And so for, you know, I'm almost 31 now, so that's a long time. Um, <laughs> but so for her, for years and years now, like I have kept journals and I've written in notebooks and I've written in the notes app on a bunch of different phones, uh, you know, on the backs of receipts, that kind of thing, just kind of like, oh, this, I'll do this. And so my parents even would be like, uh, if I didn't want to go to an event or I was feeling shy or anxious or awkward or or whatever, uh, they'd be like, just go like worst case scenario, it'll be another thing for the book, you know, (laughs) it'll give you something to write about. And so it really like, I don't know, made me want to participate in life more um, because I was like, okay, you know, I was able to kind of approach things from like an outside perspective where it was like, I didn't always feel comfortable being myself, if that makes sense. But if I had a reason to be doing something, okay, let's do it. Um, And so that was where um, it kind of started. And you know, I, I've been writing about facial difference and Cruzon syndrome, um, you know, pretty seriously, I guess, for about five years now, five or six years now, um, which I get isn't a long time. Um, but for me, I felt like, okay, I, I've really worked through a lot of this stuff. And, you know, I, I knew I had this goal of writing a memoir. So I worked really hard and I pitched and pitched and pitched, uh, found an agent, got my book deal. And then I was like, okay, now we're going to put all of our notes and everything together and like make this happen. And I thought I was ready. I thought I had really worked through everything I needed to. I had not. I absolutely am not. Um, you are a hundred percent right in that it is like re-traumatizing to have to like go back and really immerse yourself in all of these experiences that to be quite honest, I would have been happy to just like leave alone. Um, but I think it was good for me because it allowed me to actually process things in a way that I hadn't before. And so I ended up going back to therapy and finding a therapist who like specializes in trauma. I don't mean to like make trauma my buzzword for this interview, um, but it really was at the heart of all of my experiences and it, it impacted everything from how I process information to how I communicate to my ability to like regulate emotions even. Um, and so 
yeah, it was kind of just like diving in um, and drowning a little bit. Yeah. <laughs> and then being like, okay, we got to get some help. Mm-hmm. And so that's kind of been my journey for the last couple of years. Yeah, I, I echo you on that. Um, <laughs> trauma, it, it's a trending word right now. I'm, I'm, I stay tuned podcast people because I'm actually going to be throwing a couple of episodes your way um, unpacking medical trauma because it is real. Um, mm-hmm. I think a lot of the times, sometimes it's dismissed, especially with people with disabilities because um, we're told that we should be grateful for medical intervention. But what happens when that intervention goes wrong or it doesn't go as expected? Um, we have traumatic experiences. Um, but I, I echo those same sentiments that um, it is a lot to unpack. And just, um, you know, if you are listening and you can resonate with either what I'm saying or what Ariel's saying, that um, you maybe are an older adult and you are going through trauma, it's just like, hey, um, I may need to go back and think about that thing or you know, sit with it a little long. I definitely am an advocate for um, mental health and uh, wellness. And, um, you know, even my therapist kind of told me the same thing. Like she was like, you know, you have a trauma response. And so now you have to basically rewire your brain to create new memories. So now my model in life is I'm doing this to create new memories for myself because the old ones have sucked. Yeah. <laughs> if you see me like I don't know off jet setting off somewhere and taking pictures and doing a whole photo dump on Instagram this is why because I was like I didn't have like these great uh things maybe in my childhood or my adolescence because they were completely filled with you know surgical procedures and operation rooms and so I'm trying to make a new uh memory board for myself so I encourage all my podcast listeners um, like I said, um, don't be scared to get help. It's actually very normal, especially if you identify in this community. It's very normal. Medical trauma is very normal. But I will say also, it's also something that you can overcome and that you can get a handle of. It doesn't have to consume your life. Um, and I'm glad that we have Ariel on here to kind of, she's also another kind of manifestation that it's not something that you have to stay stuck in. I know a lot of times, especially when I'm speaking to younger um, younger adults who are kind of still in the thick of the surgery process, and it just seems like it doesn't, it's never going to end. You're always going to have surgery, but um, if myself and Ariel can give you any glimmer of hope, it does get better, <laughs> and the surgeries will eventually stop. Um, it won't be for always, and so I just want to leave that word of encouragement for all of our listeners Ariel, one of the things I really like about you, um, you know, there aren't many of us, and I say that as people with craniofacial conditions out there, and we're writers and advocating, and all these different things that we do, um, who identify and being a part of this community. And I, I love that you also have taken on the umbrella term of disability. Um, that you don't really just silo yourself off to just having a facial difference, but you seem to own that term from some of the content that I've seen that you post. Um, Can you kind of talk to that? Like, do you have a problem? Like, what made you own the disability label? Like, was that term unfamiliar with you? And why do you choose to identify with that? Yeah, so um, I didn't really... for I don't know growing up I didn't really identify as anything like if you had even said oh she has a facial difference I would have been so offended to be completely (laughs) honest I would have been like excuse me like I am normal (laughs) you know like that would have just I would have like been so offended refused to leave the house or talk to anyone like I would have been just like totally 
balled up inside of myself and completely retreated. But I think realizing that disability is normal, facial mm-hmm. difference is normal. It's just a different kind of normal. Mm-hmm. And so that's where uh, my acceptance of the term has come from. Uh, when I started writing and I started reading more about disability, um, it was really eye-opening and I was learning a lot and I was related to so much in a way that I was like, are you writing about my life? Like, <laughs> you know, and, and realizing that like under the ADA, like facial difference is a disability. Like it's okay. And, you know, working in disability services in higher ed, like I tell my students as well, like it's okay to identify as disabled. It's okay to identify as non-disabled whatever feels okay for you like it is your journey you do not owe anyone an explanation how you choose to identify that's fine um I also like I have hearing loss I wear hearing aids um I don't know it's like it just feels right for me um and it feels amazing to be a part of a community uh that is for the most part I'm so sorry. Patrick, 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 Patrick. That's dog <laughs> Sorry, Patrick. Come here, buddy. Come here. And so he, oh my goodness. Patrick, come here. Okay. Um, so yeah, I don't know. The disability community is doing so much incredible work. Um, and it's go ahead okay um yeah uh the disability community is doing a lot of incredible work and I I like the um I don't know I try to say that like my work my goal I guess with my work is to bridge the gap between ableism and lookism And so, yes, discrimination against people with disabilities, but also discrimination against people for the, their appearance. Mm -hmm. Um, And so I think facial difference falls into both of those. Mm -hmm. And so that's kind of my goal. I really like that. I don't think I'm super familiar with the term lookism, but I feel like, huh, a light bulb just went off because in my head, I remember I was um, doing this presentation for a disability specific group. And um, the director of the group, you know, he identifies a person with a disability. Um, and one of the students had asked a question, um, something along the lines of like, you know, where do I stay or how do I approach people with disabilities? And, um, you know, I gave my answer, which is basically that's a really personal question. Um, and I know for me, because our disabilities are more targeted around our face, it's really intrusive when people come up to me and be like, what's wrong with your face or what's wrong with your beard? It's so offensive. It's like, hide none of your business. Right. (laughs) But um, the director actually had a different response in which he was like, well, I don't have an issue with it because I've learned to take full pride in my disability. And I thought, "Mm," kind of slighted my feelings a little bit because I was just like, for you, your disability is kind of hidden unless someone's paying really close attention. But I was like, for me, my disability is all wrapped up in my face. Like it's, you know, your face is your identifier, it's your target. So I always have felt that there is a specific type of uh, discrimination or treatment towards people who have facial differences because it is so targeted. Like you identify people by their face. 
and there's something you know different about your face and it's just like whoa like I don't even know how to take you right now right and there's this idea that you deserve to be treated differently and negatively because well that's just a price to pay and you know because our appearance is so tied to like our perception of identity it's like so ingrained in people to be like oh it's my right to know what's wrong with you and I use wrong in quotes and and it's like if someone is comfortable with and like is willingly sharing their story awesome like I put a lot of information out there about me and my life and my experiences that's okay like I am willingly doing that but have I agreed to have strangers walk up to me when I'm trying to like go out to lunch with my boyfriend Mm -hmm. and be like hi what's wrong with your face absolutely not like yeah (laughs) like I just want people to mind their business you know what I mean about lovingly like I don't know. I'm not going to walk up to people and be like, hi, why is your, why are you wearing that? Yeah. Yeah. And like, obviously that's not the same because people can change their clothes, but you know what I mean? Yeah. I just, I agree. Yeah. So I I like that term lookism. I might actually start putting that out there more because um, there is a specific type of when you're Mm -hmm. dealing with uh, facial differences, it's just a different response. You know, uh, if you're a wheelchair user, you know, people kind of already know what it means to be in a wheelchair, right? But they may not know what it means when you have a missing ear, or maybe you have bulging eyes, or your skull is a little bigger than the typical skull. Um, So it's a lot of, uh, I feel like most of the time when I meet people, or if I'm in new spaces for the first time, um, that when I meet people for the first at least two minutes, people are trying to figure my face out. Like there's something going on here. I'm not quite sure. I'm not quite sure how I feel about you, but, and so I kind of have to break the ice. Like, hi, my name is da 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 you know, just to kind of get that attention away from this facial area. So thank you for amplifying that. That's, I think that's so important. Yeah. Um, and, oh, sorry. I just wanted to no, say- no, no. One more thing. It's like, I, I like the term lookism, but I also feel like ableism captures more of the intensity of some of the discrimination. And so that's why I like to combine those. Mm-hmm. Uh, because lookism, you know, I don't know. I feel like there's a tendency to be like, oh, I'm sorry, you don't like the way you look, or I'm sorry, right. people are mean to you. It's like, okay, but it's not just bullying. Like it isn't right. just, yeah. I mean, <laughs> comment. Like, you know, there's a difference between that and being like harassed and yeah. targeted and discriminated again. So it's like, combining those two I feel like is helpful but anyway yeah yeah I mean hey we could we could really talk about this like all day this is like my jam my meat um I recently did a a piece on structural ableism in the educational system it's like a whole thing Um, but like you said it's the intensity I often um equate ableism too to look at not only to lookism but to racism and how they kind of operate and function in the same way but they're just expressed very differently um so you know me and Ariel I feel like we can really get on on a train go down some rabbit holes here (laughs) but I'm so excited to just have another perspective um and just to be able to share your story Ariel here on this podcast like I said we are for women and girls with disabilities and the host of this podcast is a woman and a girl with disability and a facial difference so there's so many you know intersecting um topics that I think um, all of us can stand to learn more from, to learn from, to grow from. 
um, none of this is, it's all a work in progress. That's what I like to say. Um, I'm constantly learning. Um, some days I'm triggered and other days I'm not. Some days I feel super confident and strong about, you know, my experiences with having a craniofacial condition. And other days, like, to be honest, yesterday, someone made a really rude comment and I totally unraveled about it. But, you know, that's just what this journey in this life has offered itself. Um, this platform is just to give voice to that and to amplify um, the stories of women specifically, because sometimes our stories can be silenced. And, um, you know, there are more of us out there. There are more women who are different looking than um who are not quote unquote societal standards of beauty. So Ariel, I definitely thank you so much for coming on this podcast and sharing snippets of your story. If you have not already, I um, encourage you to go out and purchase a face for Picasso. Ariel, where can we purchase your book? That's a good question. <laughs> um, you can pretty much get it anywhere books are sold. Um, it's on Amazon. Uh, if you go into a Barnes and Noble or if you walk into a bookstore and ask if it's not on the shelf, they can order it for you um, or go or check it out from your library. Awesome. Awesome. Well, I know I'm definitely going to give myself that book for Christmas <laughs> and I might gift it to other people that I feel that can really appreciate this book. Um, thank you so much, Ariel, for your time. Like I said, if you haven't already, make sure you go out and purchase a face for Picasso, um, available in all bookstores. And we will talk to you guys later. Thank you for listening to the Womanhood and Disability Podcast. Make sure you subscribe to our page to stay up to date on all new episodes. Talk to you guys later.